today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. And uh, there are two pieces to it. One is Jesus chooses the 12 apostles, and then Jesus teaches and heals. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them whom he also named Apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. This is the word of the Lord much beautifully read and sorry for the hospital party of not um, switching the microphone on. That's what happens when you have the person who isn't normally leading the service. Leading the service. Um, we are in the middle of a series uh, looking through Luke's gospel and then Acts. It's taking us about three years. It's very exciting. And um, that's why we're looking at this passage rather than something directly related to Pentecost. But I think you'll find uh, that there are some pretty strong links uh, between what we've been talking about, sort of the Pentecost message, and what we find here. And I'm going to guess that when you started hearing that read... Um, and when you went through that list, some of you uh, sort of slightly thought, oh, this isn't sort of one of the moments uh, of the gospel. And I want to tell you that you are wrong. Uh, because the 12 disciples, are they've got to be both one of the most famous and one of the most unknown groups of people in, in history. Famous, hopefully, obviously so. I suspect even today, many school children in England will be able to tell you that Jesus had 12 disciples. I'm hoping it's not news to anyone here. And certainly, if you read through the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, you will find that the 12 play an important and prominent role. And yet, how well do we really know the 12? How much do you actually know about them? I'd be willing to, to bet that unless you're one of those people who learnt the names of the 12 disciples by rote when you were a kid, most of us probably couldn't even list half of them. I mean, we, we, that some of them we know well. Peter. We, we've all got Peter in our back pocket. James, John, Philip. Andrew, Nathaniel, or was he? We'll, we'll come back to that. Um, if you've been watching The Chosen, you might be able to add uh, Little James um, and uh, one or two of the others. Oh, Judas Iscariot. Everybody knows Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays him. But, but we begin to struggle, actually, uh, once we've named the first three or four. And, and there are some that, that we barely know anything about. And, and that isn't just us. Bartholomew, for instance. Bartholomew appears four times in the New Testament. 
There are four lists of Jesus' disciples in the New Testament, and that's the only time we meet him. Now, there are some people who, in light of that sort of later church history, have begun to wonder whether Bartholomew is actually the same person as Nathaniel, who appears in John's Gospel in a couple of good stories at the beginning and the end and isn't uh, listed as one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And they may well be right. There's uh, lots of uh, individuals who Jesus gives new names to, Simon, who is also Peter, and so on and so forth. So maybe Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person, but we just don't know. And that's my point. We just don't know anything or very much beyond the fact of their names and that they were one of Jesus' disciples about actually the vast majority of these people. And I think that's indicative of our understanding maybe of the 12 as a whole. Because I found when I was sort of digging down into this passage in this story that I didn't know it nearly as well as I thought I knew it. And it was full of surprises and unexpected things, starting off with the fact that it is a story, a moment, and an event in itself. Because I could have told you that the 12 disciples are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then again in Acts, but in my mind, this passage is a list. It's just the sort of, these were the 12. But actually, when you look at it, it's a story. It's a moment. It's an event, a very important event, because Jesus goes off and spends all night in prayer asking for the Father's guidance, we assume, before making the decision who should be in the Twelve. And that's not perhaps how we have the calling of the Twelve in mind. And the reason for that is that we, well certainly I, tend to conflate this moment with other stories that we find in the Gospels about how Jesus called some of the individuals on this list as disciples. So for instance, Peter, James and John, uh, they've been fishing all night. They're professional fishermen, but would seem not very good ones at this point because they catch nothing. And then in the morning they meet Jesus, he preaches a sermon from one of their boats, and then he says, right, go out and catch some fish. And they're a bit confused, but they go off and do it. And there are so many fish in the nets that the nets begin to break, and the boats begin to sink, and they are virtually overwhelmed with the abundance of what they catch. And then Jesus says to, to them, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we assume that that is Peter's calling as one of the 12 disciples. And we are wrong. Because that happens in Luke chapter 5, and this is here in Luke chapter 6. Very clearly a different event, and happening in very different ways. Because what seems to happen is that there are already a bunch of disciples, and we'll come back to that, Jesus calls the twelve out of them. So Peter was called by Jesus twice. Once he was called to be a disciple, and the second time, this time, he was called to be one of the 12. And actually, as we read this, it becomes clear that that is true of all of the 12. Because um, it says, now during those days, um, so he, he went up the mountain to pray and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples. And the implication is here that there are a lot more of them than the, just the 12. He called the disciples and then he chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. So that means every single one of the people on this list has already become a disciple of Jesus. 
And now they're being called to be part of the 12. And it's a much more dramatic and exciting event than therefore we often realize. Because actually, I said there were, were more than 12. I think that there were a lot more than 12. And the reason I say that is because of the second part of our passage. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. Now, in my mind, and I suspect it's the same with you, because I think part of the reason why it's this way in my mind uh, is because this is how it's portrayed in most of the films about Jesus, which probably also means that the filmmakers have made the same mistake that I did. In my mind, Jesus is sort of wandering the dusty streets of um, sort of ancient Judea with, with a ragtag bunch of about five or ten, and at times it gets up to twelve, and maybe there's a couple of other hangers-on disciples. We think that, that he's sort of going around going, Peter, you're in. Oh, yes, there's another one. Philip, you'll do. C come along. Uh, and, and, you know, probably he asked a few other people who didn't bother. Um, and, and he gets up to 12, and it's like, oh, well, that's a nice number. We'll stop there. But that's not what's happening. There is a great crowd of disciples already. I don't know what makes a crowd, but I'm thinking 100, 200, maybe the number of people in this room. Let's go with that. He gathers them all to him, and then he starts calling out of them, Peter, yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip, yeah, I'll have you. Um, James, John, yeah, yeah, you come and join me. Oh, Judas at the back, you come and be one of the disciples. And you can imagine the, the excitement, maybe even the tension. Some people are thinking, don't choose me, don't choose me. And others are like, ooh, 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 Jesus, over here. Maybe Judas's mate is sat there thinking, why did you choose Judas? He's a loser. I'd have been much better. And you can sort of imagine the dynamics. But it's a big moment, isn't it? as Jesus calls these 12 people. And, and they're a very odd and disparate bunch of people. Um, you know, what we do know about some of them, Simon, who was called the Zealot. The Zealots were a bunch of revolutionaries, violent revolutionaries, who were trying to overthrow the Romans. One of the others, Matthew, was a tax collector, who was a collaborator. I mean, that's got to have been an interesting dynamic. And they're, they're probably from all over the place. So it's not just Jesus' mates. It's a very carefully chosen group of people who God has guided Jesus to call as his apostles. So what is it about the 12 that is so important? Because actually, that suddenly gives this story a completely different dynamic. Even more so if you realize that the second half, when Jesus uh, gathers all his disciples and then a great crowd of other people who he does amazing miracles through and then preaches this fantastic sermon called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which we'll be getting into, I think, in the next few weeks. Although just as an aside, it's quite similar to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, which messes with the minds of lots of Bible scholars uh, because they're not familiar with itinerant preachers. Uh, but if you've ever come across an itinerant preacher, you'll know they use the same material um, uh, in slightly different ways in lots of different contexts. If you don't believe me, look at J. John, Nicky Gumbel, John Wesley, and you'll find that, I was about to say Jesus was in good company. You'll find they were in good company, are in good company. And this, this sort, of, sort of clutch of miracles and this sermon Jesus preaches in the sort of the next phase of Luke's gospel is really significant and seems to be kind of going up a gear 
with the reach and impact of Jesus' ministry. And uh, I say that because a lot of scholars point out that um, the, the sort of geographical range is, is expanded. And so it's a multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So this is not only a key moment in and of itself, it's sort of the catalyst to a sort of gear shift in what Jesus is doing. So, why are the 12 so important? Why is their calling so significant? And what can you and I learn about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus today, as a result of them? And I want to answer that question looking through two lenses. The first is what it shows us about Jesus, and the second is what it shows us about us. What it shows us about Jesus is actually pretty big. This is one of those moments in the Gospels where, if correctly understood, we realize that Jesus didn't think of himself as just a sort of nice, good teacher, just one of the crowd, but that he knew who he was. He knew he was Messiah and God, and he wasn't afraid for the rest of them to know it as well. Because of this number. You see, suddenly, if we realize that Jesus is choosing 12 from a great multitude, we realize that the number must be important. And that's then reinforced, actually, through the rest of the New Testament, when we normally meet these guys as a group. Obviously so, because otherwise we'd know more about some of them. And we, we often see them referred to as the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples, but often just as the 12 And the 12 are sort of Jesus' core team Uh, in his ministry. He invests a huge amount of time and prayer and effort and love in them. Uh, And that number seems to come up again and again. So the number, well, most of you here know your Bibles very well, probably better than I do. Uh, And so you could tell me that, that 12 is the number of the sons of Jacob. It's the number of the tribes of Israel. And I guarantee that every single person who was there that day when he called the 12 and who heard about it subsequently was also aware of the significance of that number. And interestingly, scholars say it's a number that rarely ever comes up in Jewish contexts other than that. And so Jesus is deliberately and self-consciously casting our minds back to the, the 12 sons of Jacob. And he is saying that what he is doing is echoing and fulfilling what was happening then. So who are the 12 sons of Jacob? They are the patriarchs from whom are descended the 12 tribes of Israel. So what Jesus is doing is remaking, reconstituting, recalibrating the people of God. Nothing less than that. This is the new Israel in Jesus. Now, it's very important that it has continuity with the old Israel. Uh, it's not something completely different. He doesn't go off and say, new number for you, 23. This is consciously and deliberately building on and echoing and fulfilling all that has gone before in the old covenant. But it is also something new. He's not just continuing what's been there. He's saying it's being fulfilled and fulfilled in a new and bigger and greater and more glorious way, which is actually where Pentecost comes in. Because, as we'll get to when we talk about us, um, the, the sort of the bigger is sort of, full, there are lots of fulfilled prophecies from the Old Testament about a new and greater covenant when God will pour out his Holy Spirit on us. 
But, but who does that? Who says, I am remaking and redefining the people of God around myself? And the answer can only be God. <laughs> or at the very least, one who stands and acts and speaks with the authority and on behalf of God. And so in his actions here, Jesus is saying everything revolves around me. It is all about Jesus. And that then comes out more as we see how this plays out because, well, how does he choose these 12? And the answer is we have no idea other than that he prays about it. He prays about it and then calls them to himself. The only kind of baseline uh, sort of qualification seems to have been that they were already disciples. And disciple uh, is a word that just means in the Greek learner. You could almost say pupil. So they're already people who have committed themselves to Jesus. The only pre-existing qualification that we can identify is that these guys were all about Jesus to begin with. And then he names them as apostles. An apostle just means someone who's sent. And their main uh, sort of uh, definition from here on in is that they're Jesus' sent people. They are defined completely around the task that he has given them. It reminds me of um, my studies. I, I'm, I'm a history Greek. I love history. And I studied history at university, particularly looking at Anglo-Saxon history. And in, in Anglo-Saxon history, the, the sort of main class of nobles were the thanes. And your status as a thane all depended on whose thanes thane you were. You had king's thanes, you had earl's thanes, and you had thanes thanes. And the, the king's ones were at the top and the thanes thanes were at the bottom. And your status was defined by the person you served. And it's the same in the Church of Jesus Christ. Your status and my status is defined by the person we serve, Jesus. And, and we see that in the calling of the 12. They are defined by their relationship with him and by the fact that he has called them out and commissioned them. And, and I think this is beautiful and amazing because, because actually they weren't a particularly impressive bunch. I mean, if I'd been reconstituting the people of Israel, re-sort of building the, the people of God around me, I'd have gone out there and I'd have thought, right, who's the prime minister? I'll have you. Or who's the high priest? I'll have him. Um, maybe some other prominent rabbis or Pharisees or teachers. A couple of rich people, maybe some of the kind of titans of industry. None of those guys made the list. We have a ragtag bunch of collaborators, failed revolutionaries, fishermen, people who, who don't seem to have anything to thrust them forward. And what makes them great is Jesus. So this tells us that it's all about Jesus. And that's important on a number of levels. It's important because it teaches us who Jesus is. It teaches us that Jesus very deliberately and very consciously put himself at the center of everything in his ministry and in all that he calls us to do. But it's so important when we read the Bible that we're never limited simply to information. 
I don't want you to go away better informed about the 12 apostles today. I want you to go away having had an encounter with God through the scripture and learnt and heard him speak to you about yourself and your own life and how you are supposed to live it. So let's take that and move on to my second point and say, what does this teach us about us? And of course, the first answer is it teaches us that it is all about Jesus. But what does that mean in your life? What does that mean in my life? And I think so often, actually, if we're honest, we, we sort of flip things the other way around to what we see here. This is all about Jesus and then everything that they do, everything that they are as apostles flows from that. But how often do we just try and live our lives with our dreams, our visions, our hopes, our ambitions, our whatever else it might be, and then say, hey God, I'll invite you in. I'll allow you to be part of what I'm doing. And we think, gosh, I'm a person of such faith. I'm so committed to Jesus because I allow him to have a sort of bit part role in the grand drama that is the life of David Ingle. But actually, this flips that on its head. And it says, no, it's not about you. It's not about me. I am a very bit part player in what Jesus is doing. And, and I want you just to sort of stop and think about, about your attitudes. Stop and think about the things that you are trying to do and to achieve in life. Stop and think about um, where you find your sense of security, where you find your sense of meaning and purpose, where you find your sense of love, and ask, does it come from Jesus, or does it actually come from me? And we, too, like the disciples, are called to make sure that everything revolves around him and not me. And actually, this is in some ways far more pertinent to us than we realize because the 12 are the forerunners of us. Because what were the 12 sons of Jacob? They were the patriarchs. They were the beginners. They were the foundations out of which the whole people of God came. The 12 tribes of Israel are the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. And so this is not an exclusive group that it was meant to be just put up on a pedestal and we'd all go, ooh, oh, they're very good. Oh, yes, I wish I was one of them. A sort of first century equivalent of the pop stars uh, and uh, celebrities that we all follow on Instagram. No, they are the foundation on which the rest of us are built. They are Jesus' starting point. That comes out beautifully if you fast forward to the book of Revelation. And right at the end, there's this amazing vision of the bride of Christ, which is the new Jerusalem, the city of God, uh, coming down out of heaven. And uh, the city represents, sort of, in a kind of vision, pictorial way, the people of God. And we're told at one point that on the, the precious foundation stones of the city are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They're the ones on which we are built. So what Jesus is doing here is not just a symbolic action that says, it's all about me, I'm redefining the people of God around myself. He's laying the foundations on which the people of God will be built. 
And that's quite exciting because suddenly it, it, it puts us, as it were, uh, kind of as the spiritual descendants of these people. And we see that again and again in the New Testament. What was physical, what was genetic in the Old Testament is now redefined around Jesus as a spiritual thing in the New Testament. So rather than being physical descendants of them, we are spiritual descendants of them. And so what was true for them is also supposed to be true for us. To to some extent, I, I suppose I ought to say, you are not one of the 12. Um, There is something special about the apostles, Um, but they are both unique and normal, if you like, in what they show us. So we we see people who are uniquely called and anointed by God, but who also are then the pattern and the foundation for us who come along afterwards. And I think one of the most important things, therefore, we see in that is that Jesus prioritised the community. Jesus prioritized the people of God. And I think that is a challenge to us in our 21st century mindsets as well. Because ours is an individualistic age. And we so often read the Bible in individualistic ways. And we think that being a Christian is all about me and Jesus. But if we read the New Testament, and particularly if we read this passage, we realize that it is all about us and Jesus. And as part of that, you are called to have a personal relationship with God. As part of that, Jesus loved you and you and you and you and each of us individually. And that old truth that we so often say, if you'd been the only person in the world, Jesus would still have died for you, does still stand. But even as he loves you as an individual, even as he calls you as an individual, even as he calls you to be in relationship with him, he also calls you to be part of us. And he calls us collectively to be in relationship with him. And so much of what we read in the New Testament has that truth at its heart. This bit, front and center of them all, That Jesus doesn't just create a whole series of individual relationships. Jesus doesn't just hang out with Peter or James or John. He calls a new people of God. Very dramatically and obviously and ostentatiously, he models it on Israel. And he says, this is now the foundation stone on which everything I'm going to go and do then through the rest of history is going to be based. And then if we, if we get to what we're celebrating today, Pentecost, we sort of see that come to fruition in a new way. In fact, the one thing that happens between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, other than the, the, the disciples gathering to wait and seek God and pray, is that they choose a replacement for the 12th disciple, Judas. So that the 12 are once more a sort of a full sort of complement. And then they are are, are at the heart of things as Jesus pours out his spirit and uh, the kind of life of God bursts forth in a fresh and new way at Pentecost. And I think that if 
if God had been working in the ways that we like to work today, what would have happened is that the 120 people who were gathered in the upper room at Pentecost would all have been at home praying. They'd have been zapped by the Holy Spirit and they'd have come together and gone, oh, I got filled by the Holy Spirit, did you? Oh, isn't it good, this is fantastic. But that's not the way that God did it. God gathered them and then when they were together in one place, God poured out his spirit and filled all of them. And there is something powerful about the gathered people of God. Now, even as I say that, I am conscious of so many problems and difficulties with the church. We're just going to do 21 days of prayer and fasting in response to some of them. So we are not unaware that the church of Jesus Christ is not a perfect institution. And many people stop being part of churches because they've been hurt or wounded or broken by the failings uh, and the, the cruelty even of Christians that they've come across in them. Or many people stop being part of a church because they see a scandal. I mean, if you read about the sort of the history of the church, that, that we're full of them. There's, there's a few brewing in the newspapers at the moment. Great figures who we thought were the, the stars and the leaders who've crashed and burnt and turned out not to be as great and godly as we hoped they would be. And whenever I think of them, I take great heart from remembering Judas. There's a, a, a wonderful quote in one of John le Carre's spy novels uh, when one of his spy masters said, Jesus Christ himself only picked 12 and one of them was a double agent. <laughs> It's a bit kind of on the line and a bit rude, but actually there's a powerful point in there as well. Because it's not like this was a surprise to God. In fact, actually, if you go to the book of Acts where they choose Judas' successor and the Last Supper where Jesus tells him to go and do what he must, it's very clear that this is prophesied in the Old Testament. From centuries before, we've known that one of the 12 was going to be a double agent. Jesus certainly knew uh, before Jesus betrayed him. We don't know whether Jesus knew at this point, even as he said, yeah, Judas, you, you come here, that, that that was the one who would betray him. But God definitely did. So why? Why did God allow one of the people who was closest to Jesus, one of the 12, one of the foundation stones of the new people of God to be not just a bit iffy, but a total disaster. And I think it's partly to fulfill uh, some of what Jesus came to do, the, 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 the importance of him being betrayed by a friend. But I think it was also to remind us that within this new people of God, right from the start, there is rot and blackness as well. And therefore we should not be surprised when we see people we thought were great turn out not to be. And I think there's something almost prophetic about all of us in that. There is a Judas in every one of us. All of us betray Jesus. In fact, I, I sometimes think of the contrast between Peter and Judas in the story of Jesus's uh, crucifixion and, and trials because both of them let Jesus down spectacularly. And I sometimes think, what's the difference between Judas and Peter? 
And the, the difference, I think, is slightly one of degree. Judas did betray Jesus. But, but still, I think, more than that, it, it's that Peter was willing to be forgiven. Peter repented. Peter came to Jesus. And Peter allowed himself to be restored. So do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the church is broken. Even this church, which I think is one of the finest churches I've ever been part of and exciting and full of the Holy Spirit, is not perfect. And we have our trials and tribulations and struggles. But we are still called to be a church. In some ways, I'm preaching to the wrong crowd. I should be trying to preach to all the people out there who believe that, that it is possible to be a Christian, to be on fire, to be fully part of what Jesus has called us to be, and yet do it on your own. And, and it is possible because God is gracious. It is possible because God forgives. It is possible because God loves those people and he never abandons us when we put our faith in him. But it is not what he wanted. It is not what he intended. It is not what he calls us to do. And so painful and difficult as it can sometimes be, because if you read the rest of the book of Acts, I mean, there's people who get struck dead for doing the wrong things at, at one point in Acts. And we read the rest of the Gospels and we get Judas and so on and so forth. This is what we are called to. The bedrock of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is it's all about Jesus, number one, but then it includes all of us. And so... That then is quite exciting because that then shows us that we're not on our own, that it doesn't rest on us. If it's all about Jesus and then it's about us, you don't have to conquer the world on Jesus' behalf. You don't need to slay the powers of evil and darkness because Newsflash has already done that through his cross and resurrection. You just need to say yes as one assumes all 12 of them did on this long-distant day when he called them. And then you need to allow God to move through you and through us. Because that's the, the final thing. We've, we mentioned Pentecost at various points during the service and during this sermon. But Jesus doesn't simply call the apostles he doesn't simply call us. He also empowers all of us at Pentecost and beyond through the presence of God in our midst and in ourselves, in the Holy Spirit. And so this is not something that we have to work on, not just individually, but together. It's something that we need to rely on God to do through us. And that's why we're praying and fasting. And that's why I want us to spend a little bit of time now just waiting on God, together asking him to fill not me, but us with the Holy Spirit. So will you stand and let's do that.